Good morning and welcome to Powell Presbyterian Church. As far as activities going on this week, everything is normal. The Monday morning Bible study uh, here uh, in the sanctuary and then also the Wednesday morning uh, prayer time and Bible study online and also the youth will be meeting on Wednesday as well. So uh, everything is normal as far as this week is concerned. I do want to let you know that next week when we go online, we're going to look a little different. You're going to get a little bit more of the service than you've been previously getting. Uh, a, a call to worship, if you will, and uh, some extra prayer time, uh, but it'll all make more sense uh, when we uh, come online next week. But I do want to include more of what we do uh, here online for the benefit of those who aren't able to be here. So that's the uh, announcements that we have, and I, I do look forward to being able to extend a little bit more of the service uh, to you uh, that are on Facebook uh, next week. And I will have you turn to Genesis uh, chapter 49 in your Bibles. And uh, this morning we'll be reading verses 13 through 28. And we're making our way through uh, Jacob, who is on his deathbed at, at this point, he dies at the end of this chapter. We're not going to get to that this week, but he, he dies at the end of this chapter. Uh, but he's going through, uh, he's blessing his sons. You'll look at him and wonder, are these really blessings? Because they don't always look that way. But it's his last testimony, and it includes a lot of prophecy. And I mentioned last week, it's very difficult. It's ancient writing. It's very poetic. If you notice in your Bible, it's probably written like a poem. Uh, it's very poetic. Uh, and uh, it's, of course, in Hebrew, uh, which makes it a little more difficult. And it also uh, includes prophecy. So we've got all these elements that really make it difficult to translate and to understand. And we went through the first four sons last week. There, uh, there was uh, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and we left off with Judah. And we talked uh, as we went through those first four sons, and the prophecy includes their descendants then, the tribes of Israel. Uh, we talked about God's sovereignty. God is, or Jacob here is talking about things that aren't going to happen for hundreds, even thousands of years, but God's in charge of all of that. And we also talked about God's long-suffering and his, his mercy and forgiveness. There were some guys that made some horrible mistakes uh, as we went through last week, but yet God uh, was able to use them and use their descendants for, for his, his purpose, his glory, and, and uh, just how God is with his long-suffering, with his people. And, and so this week we're going to look at the rest of the sons and the tribes, if you will, of Israel. And we're going to see a lot about the world in which God's children live in. And so we will uh, look at that. But first, let's read Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. 
Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his riders fall backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Sometimes written in this way, which takes a little time to understand and, and work our way through, but all written that we may grow in your truth. And so we ask as we look at your word that you will speak to our hearts that our faith may increase. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here are uh, these sons, the, the last of the blessings here. And we, and we left off with Judah last week. And I mention that because I'm going to bring him back up again a little bit later because he was significant in the lives of the last two, Joseph and Benjamin, and, and we'll get to that. And we had been working in the, in the order of birth. Jacob had taken the first four sons in their order, but now we're a little out of order here. If, if you were to go back in Genesis, you would notice this is uh, no longer an order of birth. And what he's doing uh, with Zebulun and Issachar is he's bringing them up to... Uh, their brothers that were also born of Leah. So he's got all the sons of Leah together, even though they weren't necessarily born all together. And he, he does have a little pattern he works through here. He's, he's got the, uh, the sons of Leah, and then he'll name a son of, of his concubine, uh, Bilhah, and then two sons from the other concubine, Zilpah, and then the son from Bilhah again, and then the final two are from his favorite wife, Rachel. He saves them for the last, and they are the, the two youngest. Uh, but uh, we'll work through these, some of them very briefly, and almost without transition. Uh, last week we spent a little more time on the sons because there was backstories that we had to go through and, and uh, how that played out into the present and future. 
Uh, there's not so many backstories this time around, so we're going to hit some of these uh, fairly quickly. Some are a, couple, are a couple, I should say, are pretty difficult to figure out, and we'll get to those. But let's just uh, take a look at them, and then we'll kind of wrap it up at the end. But we start with uh, Zebulun in verse uh, 13. And Zebulun, it says, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Now, the first thing we need to know is that word dwell doesn't necessarily mean a permanent living place. That word uh, shows a little bit of transience, uh, that it's not a, a permanent home, maybe more of a tent type thing, and they pick up and, and they move. Uh, and it mentions the seas uh, here, a, a haven for ship and, and border at, at, at Sidon. And, and it talks uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 when Moses is giving the blessings to the tribes before they go into the promised land. Uh, he mentions seas as well in terms of Zebulun. However, when they get to the promised land, what happens in Joshua 19, we see that the land is described, and it's mostly inland, just a little bit that goes up to Phoenicia, and Sidon is in Phoenicia, and Phoenicia's on the sea, and there's some rivers there, and so the question is, well, is he talking about that little port way up to the north, or perhaps is it this idea that they did live on the sea and then the Phoenicians kind of pushed them inland a little bit and, and that transient idea would kind of play into that. And so, uh, but somehow they either worked for the Phoenicians maybe and, and lived close enough to the sea where they worked or they got pushed in. And that idea of getting pushed in uh, might play out, especially when you look at Issachar, the, the next son. Uh, he is a strong donkey, uh, crouching between sheepfolds. We're going to get some animal uh, illustrations here. Uh, but he saw this resting place was good. And then it mentions that uh, he became a servant at forced labor in verse 15. And Issachar, uh, uh, he settled in a very fertile part of the country when we, if you were to go ahead and see where they settled. Uh, it's southwest of Galilee, if, if you know the area. Uh, but what had happened as Israel went into the promised land, God had told them, now drive out all the inhabitants. Drive them all out or they're going to cause you trouble. They're going to lead you into idolatry. They're gonna, you're going to be fight, fighting with them. They're going to overtake you at times. And we can see maybe that happened with Zebulun, who settled near the sea but got pushed in. But Issachar, we can clearly see that happened. They didn't push out the Canaanites. And here they were in this land, and they got to this really good land, and things were comfortable. And they thought, well, we're going to pull out the easy chair and sit down. And the Canaanites were right there, and they took the life of ease, and it wasn't long until they became uh, servants at forced labor because they didn't listen to the word of God and carry through what God had told them to do. So those are uh, those two sons, and, and they round out, if you will, the, the sons of Leah. And then we come to Dan in verses 16 and 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now, we're going to hear about a, 
uh, one of the judges that came from Dan, but uh, as one of the tribes of Israel. And when you see that, you're thinking, well, they are a tribe of Israel. Why does it say like a tribe of, or as one of the tribes? Uh, and a lot of uh, commentators will look at that and say, well, this is the first son who's not from a wife. It's a concubine. And what Jacob is basically saying is all of my sons from my wives and from my concubines, they are Israel. We're all Israel is, is what he's saying there. And, and Dan gets described as this serpent and a viper. And uh, what he's probably referring to, Jacob is probably referring to this uh, yellow uh, venomous snake uh, yesterday. By the way, I was uh, talking with my son. We went for a walk, and I made the mistake of calling this snake a poisonous snake. And he corrected me. He said, no, Dad, it would be poisonous if you were to bite the snake and die. But if the snake bites you and you die, it's venomous. All right. Point well taken. I stand corrected. It's a venomous snake. And it's a yellow venomous snake, and, and it would hide in crevices or in the sand. And I actually was reading a story earlier this week of someone on horseback. And, and it, just as it happened, he said, uh, uh, one of these snakes popped out and his horse reared back and he couldn't figure out why his horse was going all crazy. And then he saw the snake, but he wouldn't have seen it if, if the horse uh, hadn't seen it. They're, they're dangerous and they strike unexpectedly. And from the, Dan of tri or from the tribe of Dan, excuse me, uh, came Samson, who was a judge. Uh, in Israel, in which Dan shall judge his people. But Samson, though he was strong, he was one man amongst many Philistines, and he would kill unexpectedly. Uh, he'd just be provoked, and he would kill hundreds at a time. Uh, he made a bad wager and lost, and so he went out and killed a couple hundred uh, of the Philistines so he could get their suits and pay off the debt. He would light foxes' tails on fire and sent them through uh, their crops, burning their crops. And at the end of his life, uh, surrounded by thousands of Philistines, he pushed the pillars and, and the, the roof came down, killing everyone, including himself there at the time, killing thousands. He, he, he single-handedly did that, small in number, but he did a lot of damage and unexpectedly. Just, uh, and that was really a good illustration of the tribe of Dan, a viper, this, this snake that's just uh, venomous and, and unexpected. And then we get this outburst in verse 18 from Jacob as, as he cries out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And you might look at that and think, well, that seems weird. Well, well, all of a sudden, he's talking about his sons, and then there's just this outburst. We're about halfway through. But it's as though Jacob is seeing all the trouble. He's prophesying, and he sees everything that's, that's happening or going to happen. And he cries out, I, I wait for your salvation, O Lord, because there's nothing but trouble coming up for a lot of my descendants, these tribes. And when you look at the book of, of Judges, and, and uh, that's where uh, Samson is near the end of Judges, but when you look at the book of Judges, it's just this story of moral decline. 
It starts bad and then just continues to get worse. And there's, there's bad leaders and, and all kinds of trouble and they're fighting uh, amongst uh, other people and they're fighting amongst themselves and, and it's just one bad decision after another, this, this steep uh, moral decline. And Jacob, it's as though he sees this happening and all this strife and fighting and I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Because then he gets to Gad. And, and here there's more. Uh, in verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And this is actually very clever if you were to see it in the Hebrew. It's one long pun. Uh, the, the, in Hebrew, it's six letters long, I should say, uh, or six words long. Four of the words kind of sound like Gad. Um, and, and so it's, it's a very clever little saying here, but, but what he's saying is, is very clear. Uh, Gad uh, was constantly in danger, especially from the south and the east. There were raiders coming in, and, and they had to fight them back all the time. And Gad also was a little bit vicious. In fact, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, when Moses is giving the blessings of Gad, he says uh, that they, and I quote, uh, crouches like a lion, he tears off arm and scalp. Uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, uh, it, Gad is among those who, and, and I quote uh, from Chronicles, had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war. We have more fighting going on. And these guys were good at it. And they were vicious as well. Well, then we come to Asher. And this is a little better in uh, verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. And, and Asher, if you were to go ahead and, and see uh, where he settled, uh, very fertile land and abundant crops, abundant not only in quantity, but in quality. They had some good food uh, in Asher. The kind he would sit down and say, this is a feast fit for a king. And, uh, and actually, they lived uh, nearside the Canaanites as well, and, and the Phoenicians. And so the question is, well, did they, with their great delicacies, did they actually serve uh, the kings? Did they sell their food to the royal families in these other countries? And maybe they did. It, it doesn't really say, and doesn't say if it was good or bad if they did, but they had the food they could have. Uh, they settled in a great place. Naphtali is next. Uh, in verse 21, and before we talk about Naphtali, uh, let me just uh, read what some commentators have written about this verse. Uh, one commentator writes, uh, each line, actually there's two of them, but both lines can be understood in about three different ways. And that line, that second line that bears beautiful fawns, uh, a commentator writes, every word of this line is problematic. It's very poetic and it's very hard to figure this out. And I could stand up here and we could go through all the possibilities and the lessons we could learn from all the possibilities. But instead of doing that, here's my plan. When we get to heaven, we'll find Naphtali and we'll ask him, how did you take it? And that's gonna be our answer, okay? We're gonna to have to be a little patient with this answer, but it's a very difficult uh, verse to translate and to figure out. It, you could go several different directions. 
Uh, are they swift and agile? Uh, maybe. Uh, that bears beautiful fawns. You could uh, translate that to mean something like gives beautiful words. Were they very eloquent in their speech or good writers? Uh, uh, were they free-spirited? Uh, you know, they, a doe let loose and then they settle down when they have children. We're not even going to uh, discuss all of the possibilities there, but, but someday we'll, we'll find that one out. Uh, but that, that's the end of the sons of the concubines then. And we come to the last two sons. And these are the favorite sons of Jacob because they come from his favorite wife, Rachel, who was the wife he really wanted to marry at the beginning, but was tricked into marrying Leah and then got to marry Rachel. And then that started all of this uh, with the concubines and everything else as they were trying to have children. In fact, Rachel, she died uh, bearing Benjamin. And I mentioned Judah plays into these two sons' lives in a significant way. Uh, it was Judah, back in Genesis chapter 37, when the other brothers uh, were, had had enough of Joseph. He was the favorite son. Jacob liked him more, and they were really resentful and even hated uh, Joseph, it says. And they threw him in a pit. And, and I'll give uh, Reuben some uh, props on this one, too. He, he was the one that decided, let's throw him in a pit for a while and, and thought he would come back to get him. But the other brothers uh, threw him in a pit, and then they were going to kill him. And it was Judah who said, no, let's not kill him. He wanted to keep him alive. And the angle he came with was, here's what we'll do. We'll sell him. You know, let's just make some money off of him at least. But he wanted to keep him alive. So they sold him, and that's how uh, Joseph ends up in, in Egypt then. He, they sold him in, into slavery, but it was Judah who kept him alive, basically, by, offering, by coming up with this idea of offering him for sale. And then, a little bit later on, in Genesis chapter 44, uh, once Joseph now, who, who rises to power in Egypt, and and the, the rest of the brothers come to him because they need food. There's a famine. And uh, Joseph, uh, he knows who the brothers are, but they don't know who Joseph is. They think he's just kind of this uh, mean uh, Egyptian uh, guy and second in charge. And, and so they come and, and Joseph makes them bring Benjamin because Jacob didn't want to give up Benjamin. And Joseph made them bring Benjamin to him. And then he framed Benjamin. He set him up by putting some of his stuff in Benjamin's bag, and so it looked like Benjamin had stolen it. And, and the price for that would have been at least slavery, perhaps death. And so uh, Joseph said, well, now he's got to stay with me. He's, he stole this stuff. And it was Judah who came before Joseph and said, you can't do that. I can't go back to my father without him because it'll kill my father. Take me. I will bear the punishment. Take me and let him go back. And we can see a little preview of one of Judah's descendants, Christ, in that. Christ who brings life and Christ who said, I will take the punishment on the cross. Let them go to the Father. And that's what Judah did. And, and that's why Judah gets uh, the great blessing uh, that he does. He really played a significant part in the life of these two favored sons of Jacob. 
and there's Joseph. And Joseph is in verses uh, 22 through 26. His is the longest and most complex of all the blessings. We're not going to get into everything there. But a couple of things to point out. Uh, his branches run over the wall. We see that in verse 22. And let me just read what happens later on in Joshua chapter 17. At verse 14, uh, the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua. This is after they're settling the land. And the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord blessed me. Uh, part of the blessing is they have too many children. There's not enough land. They're spilling over the wall, as it's poetically put, in, put here. And, and so Joshua says, hey, there's more land. Go drive out the Canaanites like you were supposed to do before. And uh, they said, yeah, but they have iron chariots and they're big and strong. And Joshua said, don't worry, God's with you. Go take them out. And, and so they, they start to settle more land, but, but fruitful, blessed greatly by the Lord. In verse 23, we see this phrase, the archers bitterly attacked him. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, when we come across that phrase in, in uh, Proverbs and in Jeremiah, it's slander. That it's, it's slander that gets likened to arrows being shot. And we remember there was a lot of slander against Joseph, starting with his brothers. His brothers resented him and said things about him. And, and then once he was in Egypt and a servant in the house of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife slandered him, and he ends up in prison, and it kind of went on for a while. There was a lot of arrows being shot at Joseph. And yet, when you look at verse 24, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. They were shooting these arrows at him. His bow remained unmoved. He stayed true. He stayed righteous. When they were firing their slanderous shots at him, he didn't fire those arrows back. His bow remained unmoved. And we could spend a lot of time on that verse about how, especially in this day and age of social media and online bickering, our, our bows remaining unmoved. Are we remaining righteous? Or as soon as the arrow fired, are we quick to pick up the bow and fire right back? But Joseph, his bow remained unmoved. He stayed true and righteous. And how? That's the big question. How did he do that? Well, Jacob answers that for us, and he answers it very emphatically. In verse 24, by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. In verse 25, by the God of your father. Also in verse 25, by the Almighty. And in there calls him the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the rock, if you will. It was God who was with Joseph and kept him true. And Joseph was aware of that. And he, he kept his focus on God. And, and we saw that earlier in the story. We'll see that again later on. But he was, it was God who kept him from firing those arrows back and kept, him, uh, kept his dignity, kept his honor, kept his faithfulness. 
And then once God gets mentioned here, then notice what happens uh, in verse 25, by the Almighty who will bless you. And then he's going to use that word bless, actually blessing, uh, five more times. The blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep, the blessing of, of the of breast and the womb, the blessing of your father, the blessing of my parents. It just When God uh, comes in with blessing upon blessing upon blessing here, and it's, it's all inclusive. Notice that it, it's uh, the, the mountain, the heavens, and the depths, it's female, it's male, it's all-inclusive. One uh, writer writes, all the important spheres of activity, of human activity, will enjoy divine, ble- or divine favor. And when you think about it, Joseph, as an individual, has already lived the life that the rest of Israel is going to experience as a nation. He was the chosen one, if you will, the favored one of his father. And he was blessed. He was given special blessing up front. In fact, that's why he was resented. And from that, he was sold into slavery. And then he was even put into prison. And he came out of that then and was actually honored and glorified and became second in charge. And all of Israel is going to go through this. They are going to be blessed by God in Egypt. That's where they are right now. They're going to have all of these children and be blessed so much so that uh, a pharaoh or two down the road, a couple of pharaohs down the road is going to say, wait a minute, these guys scare me a little bit. God is blessing them too much. We have to make them slaves and they're taken into slavery. But then God will bring them out, and then there will be King David. So Joseph has already kind of lived the life that Israel is going to experience uh, down through the years. And as Jacob is saying here, and I'm quoting from, uh, from another commentator, he says, the blessings of the future will far outshine those already experienced. And we have to remember where Joseph is right now. He's number two in charge of the most powerful nation on the planet at this point. And Jacob is saying, yeah, but the blessings to come are even better than the blessings you have. And then there's one more son, Benjamin. Benjamin is in verse 27, and he is a ravenous wolf. Again, another animal imagery here. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. And I love how Matthew Henry points out that it is clear here that Jacob is guided by a spirit of prophecy. If he were saying things he wanted to have happen, he would have given something much better to Benjamin, because he loved Benjamin. But in the spirit of prophecy, he can see, that's not going to work out quite the way I was hoping. And this tribe had a fierce reputation. In fact, if you were to go to the end, I'm not going to describe it, but if you were to go to the end of the book of Judges, there is a horrible event surrounding uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And basically, they end up at war with everybody else in Israel and would have been wiped out except some concessions were made there. But it was a horrible incident, kind of describing what it was like in Benjamin. They had a very fierce and nasty reputation. 
And from that, actually, here, here's the amazing part. From that, uh, when Israel wanted a king, the king they chose was King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul, of course, was a horrible king. But here's also what's interesting is many, many years later, another uh, pretty significant person from the tribe of Benjamin appears. It's the Apostle Paul. Talk about redemption. Uh, the Apostle Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin, dis despite the fierce reputation that they had. So what do we see in all of this? Here, here's where we kind of wrap up everything. We've kind of been bouncing through all of these guys, but we see in, in these tribes, in these prophecies, a lot of strife, a lot of struggle, a lot of fighting. It kind of takes you back to verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Because he can see there's just a lot of struggle for these, these tribes. And remember, these are God's chosen people. Going all the way back to Abraham, he said, I will be with you and I'm going to bless the nations. And here they are. And Jacob's looking at this and saying, here it is. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 4, writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When we go through really difficult times, don't be surprised at that as though this is, well, where did this come from? As though something strange were happening to you. But Peter continues and he writes, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I, I stumbled across, it was kind of by accident actually, uh, a professor from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary up in Washington, D.C., and his name is uh, Dr. Peter Lee, and he was talking about uh, this verse in, in 2 Peter, and he points out, about this, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes as though something strange were happening. Uh, he was saying, when these things happen, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your faith, and there's certainly nothing wrong with God. It's a time to maybe reflect and, and check your life, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with you or your faith and you have to abandon or change your faith in any way. They're just there and they will test you. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. And then he would go on and say, and besides, if we take Christ's glory without his suffering, and, and Peter writes there, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. If we don't take Christ's suffering, we don't really have all of Christ, do we? One is glory, but maybe not so much the suffering. I love the, the Puritan Thomas Manton, and he's actually writing or preaching. This was from a sermon uh, in 2 Thessalonians, but he preaches this. He says, Christ was a man of sorrows, and there would be a strange disproportion between him and us 
if we should altogether live in delicacy, ease, and pleasures. And then a couple sentences later, he says, some drops of the storm light upon us while the whole tempest did beat upon him. The whole storm came down on Christ as he went to the cross. And the reason he was on the cross is because of our sins, but he took it. And yeah, some of the drops of that storm are going to hit us. And Peter said, don't let that surprise us. And don't let it ruin or shake your faith. Thomas Manton, by the way, he ends that sermon by saying, all would reign with Christ, but not suffer with him. And then he says, and I love this, God might have customers enough for the crown, but men like not the yoke and the cross that attend it. Yeah, I'll be a customer of the crown, but that yoke, that cross, that gets a little tough sometimes. And we do, in this world, have the arrows shot at us. And it is a struggle to maintain our purity. There are some in this world who suffer physically greatly for Christ. We all suffer as we try to maintain our spiritual purity and our morality in this life. Jesus, uh, when he was with his disciples on the last night, and I always find this uh, fascinating, there's the upper room discourse, and it's a few chapters in the book of John. And what he does is he gives this great teaching to his disciples. Then he prays a prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17. And then right after that, he goes out to the garden and that's where he's arrested and, and then sent to the cross. And, and so this is the last teaching. And the very last thing he says before, uh, before the high priestly prayer is, is this. After all this teaching, Jesus ends by saying in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The trials shouldn't surprise us, and we dare not let them shake our faith. There may be times where we have to sit back and think a little bit, But if Christ went through all of this, what would we be if we didn't go through some of it as well? And so in these days of trial, in these days when there's so many arrows flying in the air all the time, it seems, may we cling to God, maintain our faith, maintain our purity, rejoice in our suffering, that we may one day rejoice in his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of encouragement and comfort. Knowing that the hard times will come, and for some the hard times are right here, but you are with us in all of this. Increase our faith. Strengthen us in our walk. Help us to be ever closer to you each and every day. Help us to face suffering with joy, rejoicing in Christ.
and help us to walk that path into his glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, if you will stand, and together we will sing the doxology. Thank you.